0: The pharmaceutical industry is a complex and fascinating field. It takes countless of people to bring a high quality product to the market. In the Qualitox podcast, I bring to you leaders, experts, and innovators who will share their experiences and explain to us how they do it. Welcome to the Qualitox podcast. I'm Ian Kugel, your host, and my guest today is Alex Hall. Alex has about 30 years of experience in the pharmaceutical industry. She has also been a qualified person (QP) in short, since the year 2000. In addition, she assessed people who wanted to become QPs in the Royal Society of Chemistry for many years. Now she is an independent consultant and she trains people to become QPs. So today we'll talk about the role of the qualified person and what it takes to become one. Hi Alex, I'm excited to have you here and uh, I'm really happy to have you on the Qualitox podcast. and. Uh Today I want to talk to you about the qualified person, I'll call it a QP from now on to make it uh, shorter. So you're a QP since 2000.
1: That's right.
0: And uh, right now you're uh, training uh, people to become QPs, right?
1: That's right, yes. In the UK we have quite a complicated yeah. process.
0: Before we uh, dive into the uh, this story about what it takes to be a QP and so on, can you uh, tell about bit about the role of the qp especially for the uh, people who are not from europe not everybody has this role so it's more of a europe thing
1: it it is very much a europe thing and um, the role of the QP actually comes uh from quite a way back in history uh back in uh the late 50s early 60s we had the thalidomide issue and uh, legislation was introduced to manage the medicines. So medicines themselves were authorised through legislation, and that came through EU 6565. But the manufacturing side of things wasn't legislated. And what happened was that in the early 70s, there was a major issue with the manufacturing in a UK factory and five people died because some um, um, parental medicines, some um, injectable medicines were not sterile.
0: Oh, okay, so it started uh, from the UK actually because of some uh, tragic event.
1: Unfortunately, yes, yeah. it's, it's mm-hmm. called the Devonport incident and um, that started some legislation in the EU in 1975. And that legislation led to the requirement of um, authorisation of sites of manufacture and introduced the concept of somebody who would be overall responsible for the control and quality of the medicines. And this wording in the legislation is a suitably qualified person. So if you are an English speaker and even a non-English speaker, the title of this role is a bit strange. qualified person everybody's qualified in what they do but the wording of the legislation actually led to the the title qualified person and the qualified person role uh, it requires some uh, education things and some experience but essentially we are a gatekeeper in the medicines uh, role here in the EU and what we do is we oversee almost the entire supply chain of medicines we look at the active ingredients, what makes medicine actually work. We look at all the inactive ingredients, everything that bolts up the medicine. We look at all the controls, so all the testing that happened. We look at the manufacturer to make sure that it's consistent and doing what it says it does. And we actually look at all the systems around that manufacturer. And we take that as a holistic whole Um, and with all of the output from that we say is this medicine okay to be given to a patient and if that answer is yes then we will actually make a signature and that signature is taken to say that can then go on to the
0: patient Mm -hmm. so what would be the difference between a regular quality manager and the qp then
1: okay so the regular quality manager will have defined responsibilities. And they may actually be doing the same thing as the QP, but the regular quality manager doesn't have the formal sign-off from the authority in that country to be able to make that decision and sign that document to say it can go. So only somebody who's been authorized by the regulatory authority can do that signature.
0: So they're basically legally bound, and that they can be held responsible if something wrong happens. That's
1: absolutely correct, yes.
0: That's why the role is so important. So you were also a qualified person assessor in the UK. Uh, So what does it mean that you interviewed people who wanted to be a qualified person and you had to to give them a grade or um, uh, a fail or pass, something like this?
1: That's that's exactly right, Jan. Yeah. So in the UK, to become a QP, you do have to pass an assessment before you're passed on to the uh, MHRA here in the UK to be considered uh, suitable. So um, the assessment panel is we have three assessors and you have to have an oral examination. So we ask lots and lots of questions. And as long as you can um, pass that, then yes, it's a pass fail it's not a grade it's a qualification mm-hmm.
0: okay so either you can do it or you cannot
1: yeah pretty much who
0: uh, would you say should consider uh, becoming becoming a qualified person
1: um certainly there are um people who really enjoy being qps and those people i would say have a sense of curiosity yeah uh, we do look for quality professionals, but that doesn't mean that other people can't move into that realm. Uh, I've certainly seen a lot of pharmacists, community pharmacists moving into that realm. There are uh, minimum standards, so you do have to have worked in quality to become a QK, but you can obviously join into quality. And what I find fascinating is that the role is so broad based that you can have lots of different um, experience to come into it. But the type of people that really do make very good QPs are those who are interested in lots of different things. But you do need to have a um, a curiosity about what's going on. You need to be able to look into lots of things and you need to be a problem solver
0: so you you need to uh, love to see the big picture because as a qp you, you need to understand and love each part of this uh, chain of uh, manufacturing chain the supply chain you really need to understand it cuz in the end people come to you with the questions
1: people do come to you with questions absolutely mm-hmm. and i always say that the qp doesn't actually have answers mm-hmm. the qp asks further questions to clarify and generally whoever comes to you with a question does actually have the answer themselves. But the QP will help them and they will clarify the picture and let them see what the risks are with various options.
0: So it's an oversight and this person also should really be a good leader in the sake that he doesn't just order things, he needs to listen and help other people to understand the problems.
1: Leadership is huge. Very often, certainly in the UK, the QP is not in a leadership um, or a management position but they have to lead in many uh, examples and and areas. So, for example, if there is a potential quality issue where the product needs to be recalled, then the QP starts to take charge of that situation. They start to lead that um, group of people who are discussing that. And that may have some very, very senior people in the organization, but the QP is Generally, the decision maker in that situation, are we going to recall the product? Are we going to issue a warning to patients? And that does need a lot of leadership activity.
0: So how do you deal with the politics? So uh, as a QP, as you said, you need to deal with, uh, okay, should we recall the product? Should uh, uh, Can we release the product? And uh, from the other side, you have the people who count the money and they say, uh, okay, uh, we cannot lose this batch; It cannot happen.
1: Yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So um, there are people who mm-hmm. would say, Uh, Very definite no and not really give a reason. I'm not one of those. I would always look at the pros and cons and give a balanced risk assessment. So what you're doing is you're saying, well, if you wish to provide this medicine to the patient, what is the risk of the patient not receiving the medicine? And what is the risk of the patient receiving the medicine with this defect? So that you are saying there is a risk in both areas. So there is a difference between providing a defect paracetamol tablet to somebody. So the risk of not sending out a batch of paracetamol is very low because there's lots of paracetamol available. The risk of not sending a niche cancer medication to people who desperately, desperately need it is very high so even if there is a defect perhaps on the packaging that may still be able to be sent to the patient but with a warning for the pharmacist to say this is not quite right you must be aware of this so you always have to balance those risks and what the qp can do is take advice from lots of experts the qp is a generalist And we have experts in um, pharmaceutics, in manufacturing, in pharmacovigilance. And we use that advice to help us generate that risk model. And then we ask lots of questions and we kind of act as a a mirror to those people and to say, really, guys, this is uh, our perspective and this is the patient. This is where that risk resides. Not with us, with the patient.
0: So it's all about safety and the well-being of the consumer. And you said uh, you need to assess the risks. Do you use additional uh, tools to assess the the problem more profoundly?
1: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, We use a lot of risk analysis tools, root cause analysis tools. So if we are looking for a cause, then we will use Ishikawa. It is not and five wise to determine what the root cause is because that can sometimes indicate what the risk is, how many batches might be affected, um, the impact of whether the batches are out on the market or whether they're contained within your facility. Um, we also do use FMEA quite extensively so that we can see the depth and um, impact of any risk. So we are using those tools a lot in our roles.
0: So uh, what would you say are the biggest challenges in uh, becoming a qualified person?
1: Uh, as I said, my experience and expertise is qualified person in the UK. And we do have a very complex and difficult process to do it. Personally, I think it makes some very good key piece, And our challenge is, to make sure that everybody is well-rounded and we have a lot of niche manufacturing here in the UK so we have some fantastic advanced therapy medicinal product production facilities we have some really really good hospital manufacturing facilities and we have some excellent radiopharmaceuticals but if you are an expert in those areas it's really really hard to get experience in traditional tablet manufacturing, for example, and we expect here in the UK a QP to be well-rounded. We expect people to have some understanding of all dosage forms. So that is a really big challenge for us here.
0: So the QP role is a must for the whole European Union, right? Absolutely. And uh, do you know what are the uh, differences in uh, becoming a QP? What are the laws between the countries or are they all the same?
1: Basic Mm -hmm. requirements are the same. So you would still need um, two years spent on a manufacturing import authorization site in the control and testing of medicines. And the control and testing is interpreted slightly differently in different countries. And you would need a baseline Degree of the right type. So, in Ireland, that is interpreted as going through an MSc with their approved MSc course. In Germany, it is interpreted as spending two years in the actual testing laboratory and in other countries it's interpreted slightly differently. I'm aware of Italy, for example, where you would spend two years in the laboratory again. So, different countries will interpret it differently. Most countries don't have the examination that we would have here in the UK.
0: Okay, so uh, when you mean laboratory, you mean research?
1: Uh, No, research laboratories don't generally meet the criteria Mm -hmm. of working underneath the manufacturing import authorization. So the quality
0: control. It would
1: be the quality control laboratory,
0: Yeah. So um, there is one law, it's been interpreted differently in different uh, countries, Uh, like the GMP, right? You can... really interpreted in uh, in uh, many ways and you need to do the best uh, practice. So it's the same practically. Yeah,
1: absolutely. It's, it's because it's a um, directive and then it's interpreted mm-hmm. into law, you can interpret it in many different ways.
0: So what are the main soft skills would you say that are the most important uh, for a QP?
1: Um, critical thinking, decision-making, And interpersonal skills.
0: And uh, many of those skills uh, can a person develop with time?
1: I would say most people can develop those with time. Uh, There are certain personality types who find it very difficult to make decisions. So there are some people who I have advised to go in other paths for their careers, but I have also seen people who have been quite tentative at the beginning of their journey to become QPs and have become excellent QPs at the end of their journey. So I would never say never.
0: So most of the people that uh, want to uh, be QPs come from the quality assurance or there are also many people who come from uh, uh, manufacturing or uh, quality control?
1: I would say um, 70% of people come from quality assurance, quality control backgrounds, but I've seen many people come from other backgrounds, including distribution, and as I said, community pharmacy, for example.
0: As a trainer, uh, how do you help uh, those people uh, to achieve their goals?
1: So one of the things that we have in the UK is a QP study guide. And that QP study guide expands on the basic requirements that are in the directive of what a QP should know and understand. And we provide um, training modules, as we call them, based on the QP study guide that we have here. And I do training courses uh, based on those QP modules and provide the academic side of the training that's expected. QPs. In addition, one of the things that I do for our, our QP delegates, as we call them, is I help them develop those less tangible skills that the QP needs. So I do a lot of mentoring and coaching, a lot of one-on-one with QPs. And I will help them work through the kind of scenario that you might come up in a normal QP Day at
0: work. Okay, so it's really interesting. It's like I say you do simulations with them. Absolutely. Can you give us some example of such simulations or such scenarios that are pretty difficult?
1: For sure. Um, for example, say you have a batch of tablets and um, you've had some production loss of that batch of tablets through a bed dries, for example, they, the sock at the top comes loose and you lose a lot of powder. Is that batch certifiable? Could you send that batch to the the public? and the answer is
0: it depends so it depends on uh, how what happened why it got lost or then you need to assess what uh, what really happened what what caused it and whether the uh, the rest was uh, contaminated or not something like this right that's
1: one of the considerations mm-hmm. you also need to consider the um pharmaceutical actually make up of that powder because what will have gone up the chimney will have been the fines so the particle size is very important you also need to consider what the product is so if the product is paracetamol losing the fines isn't hugely important if the product has a low therapeutic index you need to understand the medicinal chemistry then that is hugely important because that can affect the dosing of your product
0: So in such cases you would probably uh, consult with some uh, pharmacists, uh, some uh, people who who could shed a bit of light about uh, the material and about its functions. Absolutely.
1: And then there's a third element to that, which is have you met your marketing authorization registered commitment? Because if you lose a lot of your product, then you have a registered batch size. And if you haven't met that registered batch size, you can't certify the product anyway.
0: So sometimes you think about the quality uh, and then you have also the authorization, the size of the batch. So it it must be the minimum amount. Absolutely. Do you have another uh, case?
1: Um, So we have uh, some more technical things where um, there are regulations about Mm -hmm. what you have to have in place to be able to manufacture, move around and um, actually just do testing on medicines. So we have a lot of scenarios because we have a global supply chain. So what would you need to have in place when you have active pharmaceutical ingredient coming from China, then you bring it into the EU to manufacture your tablets, for example, and then it moves into a different country for packaging and distribution. How do you have all of the regulations that you need to have followed? What technical agreements do you need to have in place? What authorizations do you need to have in place? Uh, do you need to make sure that you have a active pharmaceutical ingredient um, written confirmation from that country? If it comes from China, the answer is yes. If it comes from South Korea, you don't need one because they're on what's called the white list. Where does your um, QP declaration come into it? There's a lot of technical knowledge that you need to have to be able
0: to double-check that everything's in place, that your product is legally permitted to business to be certified. Yeah, I know. I remember this also from my work. Uh, so we needed to release a medicine that goes to different countries, and you really need to, even to look at the label because it says so much and it carries so much importance. Because uh, a small mistake on the label, and uh, it's stopped in the customs, and that's it. It's uh, shipped back. And then uh, the whole batch is ruined. Really, need to consider so many little things that uh, come uh, together in the end.
1: Absolutely, there, there's so many different things, and that's why the QP is a generalist that we mm. have to think of so many different areas.
0: Yeah, so they so it's really important that such a person. Uh, Works also in uh, different environments uh, to learn this experience. Otherwise, it's uh, very theoretical, and you really need the thousands of such simulations uh, really to relieve uh, such uh, uh, such situations.
1: Yes, I feel that it is very important for QP trainees, delegates, to at least visit different types of facilities to have sight, physical sight of different types of equipment. Um, water systems, for example, they are critical to the manufacture of so many different medicines. And if you haven't seen a water system uh, that is manufacturing purified water or water for injection that is going to be used in your product, it's very difficult to visualize how that actually works and the impact that that can have on your product.
0: Yeah, so the water systems are complicated and uh, it's easily for them to be contaminated and uh, many oversee uh, this fact, I guess. You see also a lot of warning letters by the FDA for uh, such uh, misconduct.
1: Absolutely, yes. There's there's a lot to do with the microbiology as well. So you're looking at the the combination of the two and how they uh, affect, the final product and the impact on the patient.
0: So what would be your uh, tips for uh, someone who wants uh, to become a QP? What steps should he take in his career to achieve uh, this goal?
1: Remain curious. Even if you're quite early in your career, look at everything that you're currently doing. Pay attention. Uh, if you get the chance to go and look at a different department or a part of the factory or facility that you've not been to before, go to it, look at it, absorb as much as you can. If you're exposed to different products, read the patient information leaflet, learn about the products that you're exposed to, because you will learn so much, you will pick it up. Then as you develop through your career, move into the quality arena, do lots and lots of audits, When you're auditing places, you will see that quality systems, there are no two quality systems that are the same. They are very different. GMP is interpreted differently in every single country, every single company. Quality systems encompass much more than just GMP. So you will get much wider exposure there. And learn as much as you can from the people around you. Talk to people, ask them what they do, ask them why they do it. Remain that curious person, keep going, and you will make a really good QK.
0: Yeah, so curiosity is, uh, is the key. Always strive to learn new things, uh, talk to people. And I think also, as you said, the audits are really important. And especially uh, external audits
1: and active pharmaceutical ingredients and um, contract manufacturing organizations. The the scope of audits, the cleaning company that does your cleaning for you, uh, cardboard box manufacturers, the um, people who make the foil to put on your blisters, all absolutely fascinating and really helpful in helping you understand the bigger picture
0: what um, mistakes the biggest mistakes that you may have have made that uh, made you a better equipee and you understood how important this uh, role is
1: oh i've made so many mistakes in my career Jan. Um i think you learn from your mistakes and one of the biggest mistakes i think i made was not realising how important the people side of things was. Um, I'm quite academic in terms of how I approach things, um, and I always felt in the past that I could argue the case with um, facts. So when I was trying to persuade people that... um, I I was right, of course, always,
0: always correct. (laughs) And then you realize people uh, don't care about right Uh, people. It's people have their own issues and uh, they feel they feel this is the the key point. They feel that uh, they are right.
1: Mm -hmm. So um, I I did change my tack and I, I stopped saying, no, you can't do it this way. I started saying, yes, however it will need this, 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 and this, and this amount of money to do that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So I think uh, like in uh, every other position, the communication is key. I've also learned that uh, um, as a quality quality assurance, uh, it's really easy to come to people and say, uh, uh, you can throw the SOP on their desk and say, please follow this. And then you have uh, a lot of throwback, Uh, people don't uh, really follow it, maybe they hide deviations because they don't want to follow the procedures. Uh, But if you come to those people, explain them why you're doing this, what are the regulations, what are the consequences, uh, I believe they would be more open
1: Absolutely. And one of the things that I found is that if I find that people aren't following an SOP, for example, and I go and talk to them and ask them, why are you not following this SOP? What is it that's causing the problem? I'll often find that there's a problem with the SOP itself and we can work together to make it better.
0: Sit together, work, work in the SOPs and the communication.
1: Yeah, collaboration works so much better.
0: Did you have uh, to deal with a lot of such situations where uh, people came and said, no, we don't want uh, this change. Uh, we have been doing this uh, for uh, so long time. We don't want to change it. How, how do you deal with, uh, with such situations? It
1: is natural for human beings to resist change. It is their normal state. So um, and certainly as a consultant now, that is very much my role to um, be a change champion, to help people manage their change. So one of the things that I try and do is to go in and ask people, what is your current situation? How do you feel about a particular system, if that's what I've been asked to change? And then I sit and listen to all their moans and groans and what they feel is wrong with things. And then I ask them to say, well, how can we do it better? So, again, they will give me their ideas of what should be done. And then we've got a slight uh, new approach here because they've told me it's wrong. So now there's a little bit more acceptance that we're going to change things. So it, it sounds a little bit sneaky. But it does help enormously if you allow people to tell you how they feel first before you start implementing change. Mm -hmm. There's still going to be some resistance because once people are settled in a system, however difficult it is, they still don't want to change to a new system. But if you listen to them and you ask for their input and then one of my main tips is simplification, So if you've got a complex system and you cut out a number of steps, that always helps sell it.
0: So uh, you're also a consultant. Uh, You're uh, not also training. you're doing a consultancy and people should choose uh, their consultant uh, carefully. So uh, you seem like a great consultant because you speak to people and uh, some consultants that would uh, come, they are will establish their standard uh, procedures uh, the same that they are doing in each company they just copy paste it and then you have a real uh, problem on your hands when they leave i don't know
1: if you've heard of the kiss acronym k-i-s-s and i always say that is keep it simple and
0: sustainable keep it simple and uh, sustainable okay I w- I will remember it, kiss. Okay, that's uh, that's really interesting, because I, I I find it really important that I, I work with uh, so many good consultants uh, to gather, and I learned so much from them, and uh, it's really great. And uh, in the last position, uh, when I work, when I had to uh, help in building uh, quality systems. Uh, Before I came there was a company, I won't name them, they just implemented some crazy stuff that completely don't fit the organization. And uh, when they left, you you stuck with uh, unusable regulations and then you have more mess that you need to clean clean up. It's not always easy when um, there are not enough experts in the company itself that can uh, judge the work of the consultant.
1: Absolutely, that can be a difficulty. Yeah.
0: So, uh, what would you suggest for such companies that don't have enough uh, experts of their own? How how can they make sure that the work of consultants uh, is right?
1: I think sometimes companies like that will go to a, a very expensive consultancy conglomerate, and that may not always be the right approach because, as you say, those large consultancy firms have standard packages plug and play if you will yeah yeah here's my package this is what i'm going to give you like it or lump it and is not really a good approach for a smaller company who wants something a little bit more agile something that fits with Mm -hmm. them i would suggest going to somebody who is agile and and um, able to adapt more for them in in their situation obviously for me I think it's different for each different set of circumstances. So it's really hard to to recommend on a a sort of standard scale.
0: So each case to its own, you need to really to see to understand what you want and uh, maybe take uh, two different consultants uh, or maybe take another consultant afterwards uh, to review. Does it make sense?
1: That would be a good approach yes
0: mm-hmm. so uh, sometimes such consultants would sit together a bit uh, fight each other each way uh, but in the end will, they maybe come to a better solution
1: i have to say um that one of the things that i've tried to do recently is rather than just work on my own is to work with another consultant so that i don't go down into sort of a a spiral of just doing what I think is correct, that I'm cross-checking, that I've got somebody to bounce ideas off of. Because it can get very isolated if you're just working on your own and you don't always double-check those ideas.
0: Do you bring somebody with you or you suggest the company to hire someone, uh, additional support?
1: It's an informal arrangement with uh, my network that I have. So Mm -hmm. I have a, a network of consultants and guys that I've worked with in the past, and I may not necessarily, uh, obviously there's confidentiality involved, mm-hmm. so what I'll do is I'll just throw out the question, if this was a situation and we were doing this, how would we resolve it, and we'll just have a conversation.
0: really makes sense always work with somebody else, because as you said, there are so many variables, and the one person cannot uh, know everything.
1: I always say to, to my students and to everybody, you are not a supercomputer.
0: What advice would you give uh, such maybe small companies to retain, uh, to retain the knowledge that consultants bring? Because it's really easy to lose the knowledge after, after a really short time after the consultant uh, actually leaves, which always happens.
1: That's a really good point, Jan. And what I've seen many companies do is put the consultant in an office, and say, don't disturb them, they're busy, we're paying them a lot of money, yeah? I would say that's a mistake. Bring the consultant into the, into the environment and make sure that the consultant is talking to the relevant people in the organization, bring them into training, so do things like lunch and learn, and impart that knowledge into the organization. So rather than just get the consultant to write some documents, it's very important that somebody who's bringing knowledge into your organisation is actually talking to people because there's implicit knowledge, there's explicit knowledge. And sometimes that implicit knowledge isn't being imparted. So those discussions are very, very important. The way that I, I was saying that I'm doing my consultancy is my preferred way. to hold workshops up front, as I said, and that brings me into contact with the people who have the company knowledge anyway, but it also helps them to feel comfortable with me and to be able to discuss with me um, and ask me questions as well. Knowledge management is an underpinning part of quality assurance anyway, looking at ICHQ10, it's right there, it's underpinning everything. So what you want to do, is you want to actually document those discussions with your consultant in any way, form possible. So you should have a knowledge management process in your company and use that to document and manage anything that you are getting out of your consultant.
0: Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quality Talks podcast. If you did, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss new episodes. Stay compliant and see you in the next one.